The heyday of alternative weeklies was in the 90s and the early 2000s when every week you could go out to a newsstand and pick up something that was, we got up to like 180. That was journalist and nightclub co-owner Mark Bischke. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Mark picks up where he left off in part one with a train trip from Detroit to San Francisco back in 1994. Probably owing to that time in history, he landed a couple of dot-com jobs before that industry imploded. He went back to print journalism at the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which eventually led to his gig today as publisher and arts editor of 48 Hills. He ends the podcast talking about how he came to be a co-owner of The Stud, the city's oldest gay nightclub. Mark is part of two separate fundraisers, which you'll hear more about in the podcast. If you want to help support 48 Hills, go to 48hills.org for more info. And the fundraiser for the staff at The Stud can be found at gofundme.com slash f slash studsf. Here's Mark. So I realized that I wasn't going to uh, find a writing career in Detroit if I stuck around. And I was couch surfing at uh, some very, very patient and generous friends' um, places. And uh, one day, my best friend came up to me and said, uh, we're changing our lives. I bought us two train tickets to San Francisco for $44. We're leaving tomorrow. Get ready. Yes. (laughs) And uh, um, so we packed up our backpacks. We brought just one backpack with us, uh, a cigarette full, a cigarette case full of joints because we weren't sure if we would get busted for, for <laughs> weed on the, on the train. Um, and uh, uh, and then we off we went for three what days year was ride. this? This was 1994. 94. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, two and was a this half, after uh, after um, what you call it? Uh, Northridge earthquake. Oh, that was early. Yeah, that was yeah, early. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was after yeah, you're like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, okay, like the, the big yeah. one already happened. It's okay. To right, go the big one already happened. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it was after that. But, I mean, when we came here, because of the earthquake um, and also because of AIDS um, and just the general economic uh, situation entirely, we were able to move into a three-bedroom apartment for $350 a month. Um, and I was able to i mean it was a lot of people were starting to move into the city and that was that golden 90s time yeah and that you hear people you know that you get so people get so angry hearing people talk about because it's like oh yeah i used to live in a whole house by myself for a hundred right and some of those are (laughs) some of those leases are still around and you'll hear it's like oh yeah i'm pink so get out of here control i know (laughs) so this was like (laughs) a You guys found your own place or you moved in with someone already? So we moved in with someone who was already living there. Well, first we spent about, I spent about a month sleeping in the park. Um, uh, Sleeping in very, like either you would find a trick to pick you up and you would go spend the night at his house or maybe a few nights or you would sleep in the park, you know? And so it was just kind of the adventure time. Yeah. Um, And and then we eventually moved in with friends who were very uh, sweet to let us stay until we could both get jobs and find places of our own. And that's when I moved into uh, the super cheap apartment after I got a part-time job at Green Apple Books. Nice. Uh, Yeah, that was my first job here. What part of town was that? 
Great. So I was in the Visadero, uh, which is now known as NOPA, but I was yeah. at the Visadero and I was at the Visadero and Hayes, which is right now probably one of the most expensive places to live. Um, Wait, to Visadero and Hayes? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. lived there. I lived next to the beanbag oh, for a minute oh, in 2002. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 643, so it was halfway in the, on the block between Grove and uh, Hayes. Nice. So, uh, yeah, right down from the beanbag. Uh, yeah. Right above Tom's Liquor and... Uh, next my brother-in-law's. <laughs> yes, right by brother-in-law's. Oh, I miss brother-in-law's. So I good. Know, I know. It's so, so different now. I love it. In fact, I want to one day, like, just write a list of all the places that, that really made that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Wait, so, so you yeah, kind of, you dropped a little bit of a bomb. You said your first job was Green Apple? Yeah, my first job in San Francisco. Okay, how did uh, that happen? Luckily, my friend Johnny Ray from Detroit had moved out here beforehand, Johnny Ray Houston, and he worked there. Um, so he had the hookup. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, it took, it took a couple of interviews, but I got in and once I was in, I worked my way up to, um, to manager, um, nice. you know, and then, uh, and then ended up, uh, having my own store that was through Green Apple down on, um, the other side of the park called Ninth Avenue Books in the sunset. Okay. Is that Green Apple part or whatever the... Is that no, the, it's like, not. It's a different okay. one. It's a front, okay. So they used to have a small outpost, a different one. But now, okay. they, now they're back over there with Green Apple Books on the park. Okay. So you're, you must have been pretty like, this is fucking working out for me here. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, they say that it takes about three years to find your niche. And I was, it actually was very difficult for me in the beginning. I mean, we, I was moving to the epicenter of AIDS. So you immediately knew everybody who was dying. Um, the nightlife was very, um, not desperate, but I would say it was very amped up because it was like, this was where you got out your energy, you know? So it was right. very politicized. It was very, um, uh, very druggy. I did a lot of crystal meth, um, did a lot of ecstasy, um, you know, did a lot of drugs. Um, and uh, kind of became part of that culture but luckily i found a bunch of friends um almost right off the bat who were my age who are also you know either from different uh, cultures of, or they were people of color for different cultures and places mm -hmm. so we were um a little bit uh you know kind of banded together we would hang out at the end up all night long mm -hmm. i would go out all night i would go to my bookstore job all day coming yeah. down and alphabetizing books yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about what about um all night places like sparky's and remember when we had yeah. all night places oh my yeah. god i know baghdad cafe baghdad cafe sparky's, um you know and then the clubs like 177 pounds and yeah up and you know it, it was actually a lot easier to stay out all night back then <laughs> yeah so would you say it it took you uh, three or some years yeah. to really get situated and yeah i mean i think also just culture shock it was a very different culture from detroit i mean right. um detroit has that very midwestern attitude of kind of like we don't talk a lot about a lot of things our activism is quiet mm -hmm. um our the liberalism is quiet i stuck out like a <laughs> Or some from that, but then coming to here where everything was politicized and everyone's yep. ide everyone had an identity 
And I mean, I think those were very good things, especially at the time, but it was very different for me. Yeah. Um, you know, just being around other languages being spoken constantly, you know, I mean, and me feeling that I was just this bland kid from the Midwest. Like, what was right. I doing here? You know, I mean, right. so um, it took me a while to kind of form my own identity that I think was strong enough to be part of the San Francisco scene uh, rather than just this quiet lump in the background trying to figure out, you know, why the heck everybody hated Nancy Pelosi or whatever. <laughs> <that week. laughs> so. Right. Jello for mayor. Um, what, right. I, I, I'm, not, I'm guessing it wasn't any singular event but was was there something that you were like now i found myself i found my place here yeah i mean i think i mean another thing that i really did not want to move to san francisco was is because is i was not a fan of hippie culture despite my raving i was not a fan of beat poets i hated i did not like the literature it was just not me where it was coming from i you know i was much more aligned with new york and kind of like a different kind of poetry and a different kind of music and expressivism. Mm -hmm. But I think what happened when I came out here, once I started relaxing in that whole attitude and just being like, all right, I'm going to take things on their own face and as kind of culturally and historically what they are. And once I enrolled in grad school in San Francisco State um, to study grammar and literature, um, that really helped me find my way because suddenly I felt like I was, engaging with things on my own terms and someone was actually showing me what was going on so yeah i think that helped a lot and being on campus and being around other young people not in a context of dancing all night but in a context of actually learning and studying that yeah that helps changing ideas that kind of thing right right i I was gonna on that topic i was gonna ask were you getting around town like were you seeing different parts of town right away or did that come later um, you know, I mean, I feel like it came a little later. I mean, yeah. I, that's another part of my, maybe my Midwesternness is a certain kind of incuriousness or a certain kind of settling in yeah. where the world is what's right in front of you and what's within arm's reach. And yeah. why would you go anywhere else? It's so weird to come from a culture where people don't think twice about driving seven hours to get to somewhere. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's like if you ask them, like, if you tell them a simple fact, like we have the largest population of Hmong people, you know, of, of, you know, of of Vietnamese refugees or, you know, they would have absolutely no idea because that's history and culture. And we don't really talk about that. So that was something I had to overcome as well. I'd love to hear the, how you got involved in the stud and I guess concurrently your writing career here. Yeah, how those for sure. branches kind of took off. Um, so before the internet, when I was working at the bookstore, um, I had kind of resigned to myself to, that I just was never going to be a journalist in San Francisco because, again, it was the same situation as in Detroit where there were a certain number of papers and there were a certain number of alternative publications and those people had those jobs for life. They were not going to give it up because why (laughs) would they do that? But then I also happened to be here when that uh, magically annoying, infuriating and opportunity providing thing called the internet um, took off. Uh, And uh, when I was working in the bookstore, um, because I was going out so much, 
my friend who had also worked at a bookstore who had suddenly got a job at a place called City Search uh, offered me money to rewrite write reviews of clubs, which I oh. never thought would happen. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so I started at City Search while I was going to grad school and while I was um, running the bookstore. Um, and while I was nursing a very healthy meth habit. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, up all night writing. <laughs> Yay, it went well. Um, chewing so, gum, I hope. Please yeah, tell me you're chewing gum. Yeah, 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 yeah chewing gum, yeah. yeah. Keeping, I had always had healthy teeth. Um, but, uh, but, uh, um, so I started in there, and then I eventually um, kind of uh, uh, made a transition over to City Search full-time and became the culture editor. Um, there for people who may not know, City Search was kind of the original Yelp. Totally, um, yeah, uh, yeah, where you would find places to go, et cetera. Um, but more and, curated, uh, right? Not not community driven, or was yeah, it? Yeah, it was much. Yes, it was very top down. Yes, yeah. it was not community. Right. And in fact, yeah, I, I mean, I remember almost the exact time Yelp debuted, where it was like, why didn't we let the readers talk? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna withhold opinion <laughs> right. on that. But anyway. I mean, it is. This was 1998, so it is 20 years later. <laughs> so yeah. Years later. But yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the the monster has grown. But uh, um. So you so were the culture then, editor at City Search. Yeah, it was the culture editor at City Search and Nightlife. Was that a paid then, gig um, or? It was paid. It was paid very little mm -hmm. because it was the weird thing of you could still afford to stay in San Francisco on a pretty much a part-time salary. Mm -hmm. In fact, the other editors at City Search and I went all went on strike, which is probably the first time, you know, tech workers went on strike hmm. um, to for so we could have a raise from the twenty three thousand a year we were making to the to thirty thousand, which was considered obscene wow. in nineteen fifty eight yeah. for a writer. I mean that is thirty percent or so it's right, yeah. <laughs> um, and we got it, which was great. Um, nice. unfortunately two years later City Search folded. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. um, um but luckily, from there, I went on to Gay.com and became uh, the uh, editor there, um, which was a huge upswing because I went from City Search, which was basically San Francisco-based, to the biggest gay dating site in the world with like 5 million daily users, which was huge oh, wow. then for a gay site. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and 50 million actual registered users, which was wow. also huge for a gay site. Um, and uh, um, so that was a hugely kind of uh, big jump. Then I oversaw the content because back then dating sites had content. You right. wanted to know news and you got to interview Ellen and, you know, you, <laughs> you, know, you did photo shoots with Margaret Show and, you know, Will and Grace debuted and that was huge. Wow. Oh my God, who's RuPaul? Who's this RuPaul person? So it was right. really like the it was the beginning of kind of the commodification of gay culture that helped okay. drive the gay rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, it was also, I got to cover the winter of love in 2004, which was when Gavin Newsom declared that gay couples could marry, right. which was hugely significant. Um, Rip Phyllis Lyon also. Right. I know, I know. And um, yeah, so the, there were just hugely momentous things happening at the time in the early 2000s that I got to cover as a journalist for this gay dating site which yeah you know, was kind of fun to do um and this was byline byline writing uh 
Uh, yes, yeah, it was byline okay. writing. Yeah, I would do byline writing. Also, yeah, everybody had a byline, and also, um, you know, we we did a lot of other things like slideshows of like our hottest members in the football. You know. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was yeah, that was usually popular. That was wonderful. Um, unfortunately, that was also uh, during the IPO, early IPO period of a lot of um, a lot of websites, and so we decided to IPO and go super professional and back then that meant you ended up firing everybody after the ipo so i kind of fell victim to that okay um, yeah so i never got to cash in like a lot of oh <laughs> man um but it was all it was all okay <laughs> yeah when i think back to like like the early dot com it's it's almost a um an oxymoron like the economics of it it's like no there oh, yeah. weren't there weren't any economics yeah, it was just crazy. It was crazy down. It was yeah. people who had no idea what they were doing suddenly being the captains of industry. Kind yep. of like now, I feel. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Feels familiar. Yeah, so, uh, um, you know, and suddenly you had, like, you know, some marketing team from Dartmouth come in and tell you what you were doing wrong. And, right. Yeah, I'm just... Right. That, that whole experience drove me into the arms of print i went backwards for most okay. people. like usually people start out in print and go to web right well, i didn't want anything to do with online so huh. i got it so i went to the bay guardian and became the culture senior culture editor there okay um who ironically ended up setting up their website <laughs> so, of course so i was pretty much the, an online editor anyway but <laughs> and so going into the guardian did you already kind of like, did you, did you, did you read the Guardian? Did, were you aware of kind of the history and the importance of that? Yeah, paper? yeah, definitely. I was aware of the history. And also, I mean, uh, I wanted to, after going, have, being part of this big international job where I was like flying these places and having to do this whole corporate song and dance as a gay man and watching the commodification of the rainbow, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I wanted to go to something alternative, super local, historical, small, I didn't want the sprawling organization. Right. Um, and I just, from being a kid, I had loved books and magazines. And so I wanted to be a part of that world before it disappeared. Right. <laughs> but I just saw this coming disappearance. And I thought, if I don't take my chance to do this now, I'll never see my name actually in print, you know? So, so this must've been kind of mid, whatever that we're calling that first decade. 2000, yeah, the, 2005 was when I saw it. Oh, literally I in the middle. The Guardian. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you yeah. said you were the culture editor there, or? Yeah, yeah, okay. senior, senior editor, culture and web. Yeah, okay. so, uh, so we covered, so that meant I took over everything. We had arts editors and music editors, but I covered everything else that kind of fell through those cracks, like fashion, literature, um, you know, I did the best of the Bay uh, for, 10 years, um, you know, I, I, I did basically everything, uh, food, restaurants, cocktails, everything that wasn't strictly concerts and art opening. Okay. Fall into my plate. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy it? I mean, that's, uh, that sounds like a lie. Yeah, I totally enjoyed it, especially since, um, although San Francisco had its web troubles, uh, towards the end of the aught or the 2000s, was this extreme flowering of indie culture. You know, right. suddenly there were indie bands everywhere. Everyone was making music. They were living nine to an 
apartment, yeah. you know, and living off of Arenell's pizza. And yes. But it was like, you know, everybody had day glow this and the shutter shades and the, but also like the, the, the just getting on a street corner and playing your guitar with friends. It was a very young, fun, subversive moment, um, you know, and during the terrible Bush years too. You and know, in hindsight, Bush, we didn't know this at the time, of course, but I feel like that was the last time that that was possible. Yeah. Well, yeah I'm, ho I'm still definitely. hoping for a future where it's possible again. <laughs> yeah. Probably uh, foolishly, yeah. I mean, but... I'm hoping to go outside again. <laughs> well, <laughs> right, yeah. First steps first. First things but first. No, I totally hear you. Yeah, it felt like... And it, and it was a unique time. Again, I felt I was in the crucible because of this, this place where history was converging because all these people who got laid off from their tech jobs became artisanal chefs and yep. barbers. Like that was the birth of the huge artisanal movement where everybody food took trucks with and, money and, and invested it in a food and, truck. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, everyone's making beard oil all of a sudden. <laughs> 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 and so it really felt like, I mean, a lot of it was of course coming from Portland and Brooklyn, but, um, I feel like we were doing it here on a grander scale with bigger ideas. So, you know, it was, it was really interesting. Oh yeah. Um, so I got to cover all that. Yeah. Yeah. The show could have been called San Francisco Landia. I mean, let's be honest. Right. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It was exactly that. Okay. So let's talk about the transition from yeah. Bay Guardian to 48 Hills and how, um, set the stage. I know just a little bit, but also for, mm -hmm. for people who don't know yeah, how this all yeah, went down. So, yeah, so The Big Guardian was publishing um, once a week. Um, and, you know, the heyday of alternative weeklies was in the 90s and the early 2000s when every week you could go out to a newsstand and pick up something that was, we got up to like 180, 200 pages a yep. week. Yep. So you could go out and get a book worth of things that were happening in your town um you know and that was uh yeah I, I look back at that and it's just incredible to me it was like i can't even imagine that much being able to happen now <laughs> it was <laughs> a it, it was like now, a <laughs> it was like a guide and an atlas but yeah, on a weekly yeah. basis so exactly, it was fresh exactly. every week it's, right Right, and it was something that you would you would encounter on accident too, because it would be left in a cafe, and you would you know you would just see a page on the street and go like, oh my god, my favorite band is playing. You know, you right. don't get those kind of accidental encounters here, except through like double click ads chasing you around the internet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but in the, but you know, as that was happening, a lot of the tech giants were growing up, and um, it was a lot cheaper to advertise online, which had this whole use eyes, you know, uh, uh, basically the, the alternative weeklies and papers have been well documented. We're losing all their advertising to the internet right. um, and couldn't keep up. Um, and to put out a huge paper of that size, you need a, a sizable staff of distributors, et cetera. So in any case, the Bay Guardian started getting smaller and smaller. Um, and our founder, Bruce, uh, who had found the paper in 1966, he was getting up there, you know, and so he wanted to retire. Um, so when this Canadian firm offered to buy out the Guardian but preserve it so that it would keep publishing as the Guardian, um, we figured this is the best opportunity we have. So we decided to go along with it until we could think of something better. But we made sure that in the contract there was a clause that said, if you ever shut down the Bay Guardian, you have to give all the assets 
to Bay Guardian people for the cost of one dollar. So nice. we uh, snuck this clause in just to make sure that if anything ever happened, we could come out of it. Um, the new ownership was absolutely terrible. It was a horrible experience. It was mm. a terrible two years of my life. I hate corporate America, and I will never want to work it again. That'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, and we, in long story short, the Bay Guardian got shut down, and we all found our butts out on the street. Me, literally, they dumped all my boxes and everything on the street and said they called a cab for me, Jesus. and they never called a cab. Jesus. <laughs> There's actually pictures, and luckily my friend Chris was happened to be walking by to document it. Um, and there are pictures of me standing on the street with like my desk chair and all oh the Guardian God. archives that I could get out. Uh, luckily, Tim Redman, the former editor, um, and I had come up with a safety valve that we were going to start our own thing if this ever happened. Um, so we started 48 Hills. Uh, before and the Guardian was actually had, shut down, you guys? He started it, yes. He started okay. it before because I felt the writing was on the wall. Um, yeah. So we started establishing things. And um, right after I got kicked out of The Guardian, we went right into 48 Hills. And, nice. Uh, we kept all the momentum and all our, we still, I think, I think it's still got the spirit of The Big Guardian um, and everything in it. And then after a year, we bought back The Big Guardian for a dollar. I was going to so, ask about um, that dollar. Deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but by then, by then we had kind of established Forty Eight Hills, and we thought, you know what, this is our own brand. Let's keep the Guardian as kind of an archive and a picture of a place, um, and keep it alive. So right now we're digitizing all of the newspapers with the Internet Archive. Um, we still use the Guardian for our uh, endorsed political endorsements, which are accessed by like 90,000 people every election. So, wow. Um, and we still do best of the Bay, which in 10, we had 10,000 voters last year just for nice. being online. So yeah, so it's pretty, uh, so we keep that going. So I'm running two media companies now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm running a gay bar. I'm hoping to run a gay bar. <laughs> yes. We'll talk about that in a second. I was going to ask quickly, I guess may maybe wrapping up, uh, 48 Hills is, is um, what, how, what did Bruce think of all this or, you know, to see how, yeah. do you yeah. have his blessing I mean, or? Yeah, we totally have his blessing. He's still in there. He's still forwarding us important stories that we need to get on right away. <laughs> uh, you know, he's very much that Lou, uh, uh, He's very much a 1960s and 70s newspaper guy. Lou Grant. Is that what you were going to say? Lou Grant. Thank you. Lou yeah. Grant. Totally yes. Lou Grant. Yes. Totally Lou Grant. Yeah. But imagine Lou Grant like in his 80s now. Oh, man. <laughs> so, like, I'm, like, <laughs> trying to figure out how to cut and copy and paste. And, oh, my God. <laughs> great. It's great. I love it. The stud. Yay. Well, how'd that happen? So... Um, all through this, I have been going out. I've now written about San Francisco nightlife for 25 years. Was that all? Um, 23 years, yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, and I still go out even at the tender age of 49 uh, when I can, when it's allowed. And uh, um, it came upon this uh, moment when the last few years have been really devastating for nightlife because the the rent has gone up so much. It's very hard. People say that the apps, dating apps are killing gay nightlife and the lack of like gay ghettos is killing gay nightlife. And, you know, those have some part in, in it. Um, but really what's killing gay nightlife and queer nightlife and nightlife in general is 
it's so expensive to right. operate and rent right. is really like what's at the top you know most most businesses are paying like 80 percent of their income in rent and you know it's, it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. um and so the owner of the stud, the building that the stud is in passed away her children sold it um and the new owners wanted to rate triple the rent um and the person who was running the stud michael who had been running it uh, since the nineties, it was like, I want to retire to Florida, you know, like I'm getting uh -huh. up there. Yeah. I, I retired to Hawaii. Yeah. He, he wanted to retire with his mother in Hawaii. They said, I leave it up to the community. If the community can think of a solution to this, I'll, I'm willing to talk, you know, um, I'm obviously not going to sell the business because nobody wants to pay, suddenly pay, you know, he was paying like 3000 and the rent went up to like 11,000, you know, a month. Yeah, so he was like, obviously I'm not going to pay that. I'm I, no one's going to pay that. Right. Um, so uh, my friend Nate um, and my friend Rachel reached out to me and my husband David and said, "Do you want to be part of this crazy thing? We want to start the first queer nightlife co-op in mm. the world, you know, and we want to buy this bar and we <clears> want to <throat> operate it as a co-op um, and figure out if that's a blueprint." to help save queer nightlife in other cities. Hmm. Um, and so after our initial meetings, uh, there were about 17 of us um, and we've hung together throughout all this. We've only had one person leave because they had other things to do. Um, we were still kind of like the original 17 um, and we over, went in and we Over how long of a time was this? Uh, so uh, we, we had about six months to get everything together. Okay. Um, in terms of talking to Michael about how we would do it. We worked with the city. The city was very uh, eager to work with us because they know that like if the, if the city's oldest gay nightclub gets shut down, that's like terrible like, right. for everybody involved. You know, we were ready to have protesters. We were ready to do anything that we needed to do um, to keep it alive, to keep this little club alive. Um, and yeah, we bought the business. What year was that? 2006. 16 yeah, so four years ago yeah 2016 yeah so pretty okay. much four years ago um and uh it was at the end of 2016 so yeah we're approaching four years soon and uh, um uh then we just dove in and we started doing everything uh i i did we did janitorial stuff i was a bartender my husband got his bouncer certification security certification he was a bouncer um we all were like finding you know sewing fireproof curtains and yes. <laughs> and managing drag shows and like you know we all were doing it as a co-op um until we figured out you know what there are people who do a lot of this stuff better than us so we're gonna <laughs> right. hire a staff right right <laughs> yeah so um so yeah so now we basically have a manager one of the members of the collective rachel ryan who's amazing is the general manager and we all kind of work through her and she manages our staff and it's going pretty great until about three months ago well <laughs> or a month ago yes yeah it present, like present times excluded <laughs> right. um and of course that's not specific to you guys no, but, no. Oh my but God. actually, let's talk about that quickly so that we have it on on uh, on record. Like, what are you guys? Are you doing any sort of fundraising or yeah. anything? Right. So we do have. Uh, we kind of like a, about a week after we had to close, we put together a fundraiser for our staff, mm -hmm. um, which uh, we're hoping to raise. Um, uh, hoping to raise fifteen thousand dollars for our mm -hmm. staff, and that's going pretty well. 
Um, okay. And then uh, that's a GoFundMe, regular GoFundMe. And then um, we also just launched our drag show, Drag Alive, which was our Friday drag show. It's now on Saturdays on Twitch. Um, nice. And this, I was blown away. It's super well produced. We've got famous queens like Peaches Christ, Christine from Austin, um, because now you can just do it at home, right? You don't right. have to fly these queens in. Right. So, <laughs> so, um, and our, yeah, our, uh, uh, our tech manager, Jerry Lee, is putting it all together. It looks super well produced. Um, so, yeah, it's going really well. And that's kind of a tip to your drag queen kind of thing. So, awesome. uh, so they're making some money. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And meanwhile, we're just preparing for hopefully reopening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that's unknown for everyone, but possibly may right 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 possibly possibly. <laughs> yeah. yeah are there any so is the landlord doing any sort of you know uh, rent forbearance or anything like that or a anything? little bit it's hard to uh, they're being a little intransigent about things mm-hmm. um you know because they also have to pay for whatever they bought the building right. for which is right. like outlandishly expensive um, you know, it's the first time I'm, you're ever going to hear me being very uh, uh, sympathetic to landlords, but I can see why right. <laughs> they need to say that as well. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, we are trying to work something out with the landlord, at least a little okay. bit of a lowering of the rent. I mean, what has impressed me through all this, just being a person who writes about nightlife and, you know, who's running this uh, news site is just in how much people have gotten together in the nightlife community and the arts community and the bar community and the service community uh, to take care of each other. Because obviously like those, you know, I mean, you can't, if you're paid by tips, unemployment doesn't really help you at all. Um, You know, but people are starting funds up right and left. Like the queer nightlife fund has already raised $120,000 for for people. Um, You know, there's, there's various bar workers funds. Every bar launched their own GoFundMe and people are actually giving money to them. You know, they're, you know, people are reaching their goals. I mean, some of them, I'm just kind of like, really? You're giving 50,000 to that one? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We can still have taste. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but yeah, definitely it's been inspiring. One thing has been inspiring and good coming out of this is seeing just how much people aren't they haven't been turned by the economic climate of the past couple of years in San Francisco into like all for themselves right. kind of people. You know what I mean? This is a lot of, I, I mean, we, 48 Hills obviously comes at things from a progressive standpoint, you know, and, and a lot of the times people blame us for being touchy feely or mm-hmm. we have to face up to the economic reality. If you can't afford to live here, then why don't you move kind of attitude. And mm-hmm. it's like, there's thousands of people who have hung on and you know what, we all are supporting each other, which, you know, I mean, if Facebook lays off 2000 people, are they going to be there for each other as we are, you know, hopefully they are because they have that feeling and hopefully we're providing an example for kind of corporate world that happens. But uh, just seeing that love there has been important. That was Mark Bischke. Check back next week when we'll get to know artist Robin Galante. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography for this episode is by me, Jeff Hunt. I also host and produce the show. Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes and help support us by buying merch from our store. 
please follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do us a quick favor and rate and review the show. And if you have any feedback or people you think should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe.